Welcome back to another fun Saturday one. Uh, we don't have Joey with us again for this Saturday, unfortunately, but um, the whole reason for it was he just came to the end of the week. It was a crazy, crazy week for everyone and was like, all right, it really wouldn't hurt to knock out a Saturday one and push it back a little bit. But I learned something super fun that I want to start out with and just jump right back in is uh, apparently the Japanese companies avoid using the name Apple. And the reason is they will. So first off, I think this is really funny and I know I put it down so you get to see it. They, they'll either refer to it as the big A or the honored North American customer, which is like the most Japanese thing I have ever heard, which is awesome and hilarious. But the reason that they don't refer to it as Apple is twofold. And the first piece of that is apparently it can be offensive if you refer to someone's company's name kind of flippantly or just off offhand. So the, the contracts that they have are worth so much money that they just can't risk any sort of offensive behavior towards Apple because it would just ruin these little companies. And the second reason is that I want to say it was 2017 or 2018, but within the last five years, there's been a couple new laws passed about privacy and revealing who you do business with over there and over here in the States. And you really just can't always reveal you even internally within your company. So that's how they get around it. So if they're saying we need to deliver 500 microchips to Apple in the next six months, they wouldn't say that they would call it the a company or the honored North American customer or consumer or something like that. That's kind of funny. I mean, I just, I've never heard of anything like that over here. We either just talk about it or don't talk about it. We don't ever make up weird names, but I think we should call Tesla the big T. Big T. Like yeah, it tea. makes sense from like a privacy standpoint, but if it's like the whole offense part, I really don't think Apple itself is like really that worried. They're just going to be like, okay, whatever. Like, I feel like we've got a thick enough skin as American people that we're really not going to care. I think so. I thought that too. And I think it's because they have a Japanese, their Japanese presence is ginormous. And so over in Asia, you pretty much just have to go by their customs, which I mean, makes total sense. Yeah. But I, yeah, I actually think the offensive part was bigger than the privacy loss, funny enough. And huh. so I probably like once a year or so, I, I get really motivated and I get back into like learning Mandarin Chinese and I end up getting to like the same point where I can pretty much order food and say hello and not be terribly disrespectful. But learning that language is interesting and it's not as hard as it would sound, but the structure of their language is like the literal structure of the words and the sentences and the phrasing is so that you are as respectful as possible all the time. Like you identify someone by their family name and identify them first before entering into the sentence. And I hope I'm not incorrect whenever I say that, because that's, that's pretty much what I, that's what I learned and I'm hoping it's not wrong, but it's very interesting. And I, I know rudimentary Spanish, I like to practice that too. And their language is completely structured differently as well. So I, our lovely uh, marketing coordinator uh, is Cuban. And I, I try to practice with her every once in a while. And I know we've all got our elementary school Spanish education, but whatever. So past that, they have so many fewer words to say what they need. And we have so many in English, like just tons for no reason at all. And it seems like our structure is just totally whack. Yeah, there's a lot of things where it's just kind of like flipped, essentially, where like just the organization of how you say things in speech. Yeah, but they have a pattern. Ours are all different. So if I was like, hey, Matt, how was your day? That translates because that's super easy. But then if I wanted to say, hey, did you leave your banana in the refrigerator? It would be a completely different structure to a sentence like that because there's two subjects and there's a verb and it's a past tense verb and all that good stuff. But it's kind of wild. So I think the reason we think the Asian languages are so difficult is one, you have to understand that they're structured differently. And two, they all have different tones for each. So, I mean, the, the good example is wa, which has a rising tone is hello, but then you could also do wa or wa or flat. And those three, while they're all spelled the same, are completely different words, wild. And then there's a fourth tone, but that's yeah, just Chinese. That's where it gets difficult is when you have tonality attached to words. And then like, I mean, I understand the different structures and that type of thing, but like, English on its own, it's kind of like we we had someone that spoke like nine different languages and then they got like a traumatic brain injury and then just picked up random parts from all the nine languages and like smushed it together. And it was like, okay, here's English. It makes sense. And it really doesn't. Yeah. Also, we have like four and four both mean different things. 
um, R and then R is a letter and well and well and there's there's a whole bunch of words that mean like three different things just completely depending on when you want to use them. That doesn't really happen over in Spanish as often from my experience. Correct me if I'm wrong, anyone please, but uh, we got like through and though, which are look spelled roughly the same, totally different pronunciations. Entirely different with one little letter. Or I mean asking like if you don't understand like the rising tone at the end of a end of something to signify a question, you'll be totally thrown off because English is already complicated enough. Like how are you? Mm -hmm. Or how are you? Completely different. But <laughs> all right. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I wanted to use that as kind of a segue into another topic that I was reading about. Uh, this was actually promoted to me through Substack, which is an awesome program that I use weekly and I love. And they'll send you stuff that they think that you would like. Uh, I forget the guy's name. I'll try to link his article. But he was talking about the future of informality in cities, specifically about informal transportation. And... It's something that we don't really see in the States or in the like whole North, most of the North American continent. And I think it's because we look at it as like being behind the rest of the world. If you don't have a car, you're behind or like, you know, all this stuff. And over there, it's totally normal. There's, there's just services everywhere that are constantly shuttling people around. But Matt, you've been to New York City. So, I mean, you, you understand like their taxi system is essential. I wouldn't say their taxis are. The taxis are pretty trash now. I mean, everybody takes, I mean, they have Uber and all that rest of that stuff and Lyft, but the subway system is key and how the cities are built are key because New York is built kind of like a lot of how Europe and Asian cities are where it's all crammed in one tiny little space because it's an island. There is only so much space. Yeah. So you build an underground little subway system, it can get you to and from really simple, really fast. But like here or Jacksonville, for example, you want to go to two different parts of town and it's 45 minutes apart. Yeah. The joke here is that no matter where you're going down the road or across town, it's 20, 25 minutes. Yes. It's just kind of as spread out as physically possible. But I, so to be fair, we have a heck of a lot of wetlands in Florida and you, there's you know there's there's natural obstacles and if you went up north you've got mountains which are arguably larger natural obstacles but I, <laughs> I'd say so yeah yeah they're, they're larger it's harder and, to move a mountain than to fill a hole it's true it's true it, yeah our biggest thing is we just have to get the regulation passed that lets us move it somewhere else and redo it mm -hmm. but yeah that was that was one of my points I wanted to make is the reason informal transportation doesn't really work in the south is because we have I've got these stupid really slow lazy regulations that just make it a six month process to get anything done. And it's, it's appallingly slow, everything you try to do. And that's not to say that the people in charge aren't trying their best. I don't want to put that on anyone, but it just, if you wanted to open like a taxi service, it's going to be a bit of a headache around here. And most people aren't going to use it because most people have their own cars or they're probably not in a great situation is just a massive divide. But, and this kind of extends out to the future of informality, like across the board, not just whenever it comes to uh, like travel logistics. And recently, you'll love this. This is interesting. I don't know if this has been totally confirmed, but I heard that apparently Jerome Powell went on the record and he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve. Apparently he went on and said it is possible to have multiple reserve currencies, which is kind of it's really not ever been done to my knowledge i need to double check that but think about that i mean we could have a dollar and then we'd be willing to accept other other forms of currency in other places and use both of them as our reserve currency doesn't, doesn't that make it more stable because if one fails you just go to the other i think he's just slightly opening the door for u.s dollar pinged uh token type thing yeah usdc yeah maybe i don't know but yeah, the big. I don't uh, know. I don't think we're going to be like accepting like the lira as our. Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably second. not. Literally, <laughs> it could be the uh, it could be the yen soon. You never know. Mm, maybe the yuan. That'd be great. Well, the uh, the good the uh, we can close this topic out. But um, the last quote that I saw that I liked was I think informal travel is one of the things that like physical money actually works for. And you know I'm I hate cash. I think it's a waste, and no, you shouldn't have cash anymore. You're just burning a hole in your pocket. But 
it, it used to be, you know, you, it's a nickel for a ride was the rule. You know, you'd get somewhere and taxi, bus, anywhere. You just, you'd have a stack of nickels at home and you'd grab a nickel, nickel for a ride, done. And that was simple. You could budget for that and you could get ready for it. And it's something that wouldn't just accrue over time. So maybe one of the few times that I would still think that if we could make the system work, you know, a dollar for a ride, $5 for a ride, make, could make it easier and could make physical cash actually worth it. I don't know. I mean, with phones now having you can just tap another person's phone to pay yeah i feel like we don't need cash even more like the fact that apple just did that even though it's already pretty much able to be done just a couple more steps with venmo or cash app whatever else it's the same exact thing but it, it's just so easy there's no i don't carry cash at all unless i'm going to like the county fair yeah i think that's the only instance where i would carry cash same literally never and and even then now, all anytime you go to a food truck or a vendor or whatever, they've all got a little tap to pay or a square thing so that way you can swipe your card. Well, they literally had to adapt or die. I mean, you go to a food truck now and I mean, a few, I don't know how long ago it would have been. I'm going to call it within the last five years. There was probably a point in time where this completely switched. But if you went up to a food truck with a, a credit card, you couldn't get anything if that's all you had. Like they'd be like, no, nah, we got it's cash only. That was it. There's, there's probably a point in time where they looked at it and they said, all right, we've got Square, we've got all these other payment processing technology units, and there's really no reason for us not to do this. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure having a food truck is a lot more profitable now. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure there's a certain amount of profits you had taken out for using those sort of services, but it's also like, it probably makes things a whole lot simpler for them to track in their systems where they can put in like when they buy and sell things that'll probably run more than just the transactions it'll do a little bit of inventory and everything else all for them yeah like a like a full pos system yep that makes sense you have to wonder i i wonder if the amount of tips that like a food truck style business got increased whenever it changed over to accepting credit cards because it, it's really easy they make it as easy as possible where you swipe it and they go all right would you like to tip uh, 10, 15, or 20% or custom or none. And it's so easy for you to be like, oh yeah, just tap the 20 and move on. I mean, if it's an $8 transaction, it's like a buck 50, two bucks, it's, it's nothing. And um, which means that by our standards, that 20% is acceptable, but that's a really, really tiny little tip. And if you had cash and you were getting a, if you were getting an eight dollar transaction done, you'd probably give them twelve, and you'd be like, "Ah, yeah, here you go. Can you just, here's a couple extra bucks. Enjoy yourself." And I, I don't, I don't know what those statistics look like, but I think that'd, that'd be interesting to measure. I don't know, but I, I have take some issue now with the fact that any time you get any sort of service, like food service, like I like everything now has the option to tip them. Yeah. And like, I feel like with the person behind the cashier or whatever, like you feel obligated to tip them. And in my mind, the original part of tipping someone, which was originally made for waiters and waitresses and that type of thing was, is that they were doing an additional service for you. They were providing part of the experience that refilling your drinks, making sure you're happy, all that type of stuff. As compared to like, if I go through the line in Chipotle, they just made my food. They literally did their job. I don't, I don't, I don't directly tip the chefs at a restaurant. They may get tipped out or whatever at a restaurant, but like, I don't directly tip them. I'm tipping the waiter for the service they provided for me. So why should I tip the Chipotle people for the food that they made? That was the whole purpose of me going here. Like that should be incorporated into the cost and my idea. I feel like I don't need an extra 20% on top. Same goes for food trucks. I mean, they're not providing me any like actual service on top of the food itself. I wonder, I have to wonder if whenever we begin to automate fast food more and more, do they keep the option to tip? I'm not tipping no damn robot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree with you, but if, I mean, if it's, yeah, if it's one person running the entire store, you, you got to feel bad for him, especially if it's late at night or something like that. And you'd be like, ah, oh, yeah, here's a couple extra on the side. But I, mean, I don't think you have a, I haven't been to a McDonald's in so flipping long. Do you have the option to tip at McDonald's? I don't even know. I don't think so. I think they just I have wouldn't. like, they just have like a jar. Like they just, an old fashioned, like, hey, if you have a couple coins, throw it in there. I think even most of the time, that's just for like some fundraiser for like Ronald McDonald House or anything. Like it's not normally to tip them. Yeah. We use tipping kind of weird here. And I so I did my year in a restaurant and I enjoyed it. And I, I got to say, I made a shitload of money in season. And But if you're if you're not busy, you won't make money. So it's, it's kind of a cool foray into the world of, and this is a world that I believe in, 
you'll only actually gain your financial freedom if you're paid by the project, not by the hour. If you're paid by the hour, you're probably never gonna be motivated to do more and you'll just get stuck and comfortable and live off that paycheck. If you're paid by the project, you're always motivated to innovate and do more and get further along. I, I really do believe in that. But sometimes there's just not more that you can do in a restaurant. You're kind of stuck and there's no one coming in. And I think we kind of use the tipping system as an excuse to not pay people very much because restaurants' bottom lines are already so low and their profit margins are so thin that they just basically have to say, all right, we're already not making very much money. We have to be lucky, be successful. The only way for you to survive in this job is to go above, over and above and make sure that we survive first. Why does it work in the rest of the world though? The, like the US is like the only country where we really tip people. In a lot of countries, particularly Asian countries, it's seen as offensive to try to tip someone. You're right. So, and I even saw a thing the other night, it was Gordon Ramsay's restaurant thing, whatever he goes in and sees what's wrong with him. And like, he was appalled that a U.S. waitress, she was the only waitress there, and she wasn't given tips. Any tips she collected were given to the owner. Yep. She was, she was paid on an hour, hourly rate, and he was like, how is this possible? And I was like, that's how the rest of the world does it. I don't necessarily see an issue as long as she's comp- like compensated to the right amount. Well, I, I mean, I, I couldn't tell you. So we, we definitely have a shortage of waiting staff in the US. I mean, you, you'll see it pretty, just literally take a drive down like a town center or a strip of restaurants. They're all going to have hiring signs with numbers. Every one of them is. They're all starving for people to work for them because no one wants to. And I, I'm super lenient with this kind of stuff because I get it. I mean, everyone's bad days, but the quality of wage staff is pretty bad nowadays. Like as like an average from my experience, and I know there's no way to average that out because there's so many good, hardworking people in the world, but it seems like it's kind of a heck of a lot worse in the last few years. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I get it from the people's standpoint. Like, in a lot of cases, it's not worth, like, they feel it's not worth their time to go do that. They're not being compensated enough. Right. And the companies, like the chains, with the exception of mom and pop, the mom and pop shops do a fantastic job. But the big chains, whatever they may be, fast food, sit down restaurants, whatever, they've, their profit margins have been soaring for forever. And like, of course there's trickle down economics, but there, there hasn't been any trickle down all the way to the bottom. It, it, it stopped. So people's wages up until very recently stayed roughly stable. And it was like, okay, it made no sense. Like for $8 an hour, you could do better panhandling on the quarter of the highway than you could going to work at McDonald's. I think it'd be very interesting to, I, 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 I mean, so, my experience is that the profit margins are thin at restaurants, but I guess that's probably just more local stuff. So I don't know. I, I, that'd be a fun, interesting study to do to see the big companies, like the big restaurant operators that control everything, the giant brands, see how they're actually doing on a profit basis. And you brought up an interesting point. I don't want to get totally too far away because I love the restaurant talk and I think there's stuff to be solved there. But I had a thought. I said, look, if, if you're going to be asking for handouts on the side of the highway, the smartest way to do it, and this is, I, I accept that there are problems with this and they, there's, there's obstacles in front of you. Get a Venmo account and put your Venmo account in your sign. That is going to be so much more effective than asking for cash because no one has cash. Yeah, I mean, I get that, but then it's also... You have to have a phone. I mean, you have to have if, if you're service. that broke that you're panhandling, A, you have to have a phone. Yeah. And then if you do have a phone, do you, people really need to be giving you money? I mean... Yep. Agreed. There are more affordable smartphones now, but like still, like I feel like that might a deter other people from like giving you money. B, it would cost a lot of money to get into. If I was solving the problem, I would I would think, can you use Venmo off a computer? Like, can you go to a public library, do something like that, public access internet? That would be probably the way Maybe. to solve it. But then you're right. I, I hadn't even thought about the psychology of it. Is oh hey, if you have a Venmo account, you probably don't need any help. Yeah, but then you got to get a credit card too that attaches to it. Yeah, that's so true. Bank account. So you have that, that. I didn't even think about that. That's true. I don't know. Things to be solved, but I mean, well, nowadays there's so many, there's so many free small tiny banks that are just starving to get people on their balance sheet. And there's new, there's more that come out every week. I see new names all open, open this, get a credit card in two days, get approved with literally nothing. Like we just, we just, we need to lend people money. That's what we need to do because we need to generate the interest rates. And, yeah, and I argued that 
the issue with the banks and their mall starving to get people to get cards is the same issue of why the profit margins are low on a whole lot of restaurants is because we've got a whole lot of people that are creating things that don't necessarily need to be there. Yeah. Like if you've got three Mexican restaurants in town and you're not doing anything extravagant and totally different and better, there's no need for you to be there. Yep. I agree. Like there's a few in Jacksonville and there's some that are just like, okay, this is your basic, like uh, Mexican. It fits that niche. <clears throat> But then there's others that are absolutely fantastic, best tacos you're ever going to have at Jacksonville. And those fill that niche. But if you don't have another niche other than them, your profit margin is going to be low because no one's going to necessarily pick you because there's better options. Yeah, it's the red ocean strategy. Why would you compete in the shark infested waters? Go to the blue ocean strategy. Go somewhere where your concept has not been before. Yep, but people would rather stay right where they're at and try to compete with other things rather than, I guess, move somewhere else where it's unknown and try to do something with an open market. So from a real estate standpoint, I, I think I can explain that somewhat sufficiently. I, the reason I think a lot of times that that happens is real estate operators, restaurant operators, and people who build those concepts, they are super risk averse because they already exist in a high risk environment where one season can literally shut you down and bankrupt you. So they don't want to take on any more risk than they have to. They avoid risk by placing their concepts in proven areas and not trying to pioneer somewhere else. So I'm sure you've seen that meme where it's, it's like, this is peak America. And it's just a classic highway with 30 different like chain brands on each side and five gas stations. And it's just, it looks like hell. And I think the reason for that is because every time you go to a bank and you say, hey, I need $200,000 to open up this franchise here, um, they're going to say, all right, cool. What's your business plan? Where are you going to put it? And you say, I want to put it here. Uh, there's no other restaurants here. There's uh, there's no proof that this concept will work. They're going to laugh at you and shoo you away. If you say, I want to go to this crowded corner, there's already five. There's a McDonald's, a Taco Bell, and a Burger King there. They're all killing it. They have so many people wrapped around the play, the uh, the drive-through every single day, all day. They're gonna say, "Oh yeah, there's people there." That that proves that concept. That's why they. That's why they're gonna let them go there. I'd argue that if you can't prove your business is going to do well without the success of other businesses already occurring, you probably shouldn't have your own business opening. And I agree with you. That, that's my opinion. If I can't like, if I'm gonna open up, we'll stick with the Mexican restaurant thing here. If I'm gonna open up a Mexican restaurant and I say. I'm going to put it right here. It's going to do good. And they're saying, well, there's no other restaurants there. We can't prove you're going to do good. I'm going to bring in all of my best meals. And I'm going to run it through that bank or whatever. See, taste my food. See what it's like. You get an example of what it's like. Even to if it's other investors, whatever it may be. Show them what it's like. If it's the same Mexican food as everybody else, then I'm not going to get the money. But if it's something that's better and different, it's going to fill that niche. And people are going to invest in it type thing. In theory, it's a great option. I... I've never tried to open a restaurant, so I don't know. But if there is a huge startup cost for getting all that stuff going. And I mean, you're pretty much just completely at the mercy of the bank's algorithm. So I, I guess you could walk in there and say, hey, try all my stuff. You say for yourself, if it's like a local credit union, that might work. But man, you try to walk in a Bank of America and do that, they're going to say, nope, next customer. That's why we shouldn't go to Bank of America. We need to be able to invest. And I talked about this forever ago with you, John, is we need to have like, a small town investing where like local people can invest in local businesses and startups and that type of stuff. If Joni wants to open up her version of crumble cookies and you've had Joni's cookies and they're really bomb, then you can invest in Joni's cookies and help her start up her thing. You're right. And I've, I've always liked this. And if there was, I, I don't know how to build it. That's the problem is it's going to take some thought to build something like that. And you're going to need just a ton of people on board before it even becomes semi-profitable. But so think about this way. Maybe I want you to confirm, deny something like this. We're talking about like, there's what, five major cities in Florida, Miami, Tampa, Orlando, Jacksonville, and I don't, I don't know, probably, okay, four, we'll call it four. So each one of those should have their own city personal bank, you think? Sort of. Yeah? Sure. Okay, so we'll assume that, and that's where you would go if your primary residence is there you could go in there and take a look at their offerings and say, hey, look, you can bank with us normally, you can invest you know, 401k, all this super basic stuff, brokerage account, whatever, but also we have our own form of private investment where you can basically peruse a list of local businesses that are, ex that are extending equity out to the community. 
you have to live here or you have to have been here for long enough. We don't want people coming from out of state and just bulldozing through with tons of money and then taking over. And then we get 100 Bank of America branches and 100 McDonald's. We don't want that. You have to prove that you're here or you're going to be here for a while. And you can now take private equity with your own investments in the restaurants and the shops that you go to on a daily basis or that your wife goes shopping in or that your kids like to go playing in or your husband does this or that. Is that what you're saying? Yes. And to make it more interesting, limit the amount that you can have like shares you can hold in something or how much you can invest. So that way it's open to more of the average Joe guys that can do this. You can invest as many of these as you want, but you can only hold like, I don't know, a certain amount of it, 5%, let's say. Yeah. But you can't just go in and have like one big investing group come in and just go, okay, we want these five companies and buy them all up because they're the most profitable ones we think that uh, are there. And then they take away the major profitable investments and like the small guys get shafted again. I like it. Two problems we gotta solve. The first one is, what if I have 40 other friends and we all just take 5% and then we now take it over as a syndicate, uh, rinse and repeat that 100 times. And the second one is, what if you've got just a ton of money that you wanna give them and they're not getting investment from anyone else and you're like, look, I, I, wanna, I wanna buy 50% there. I mean, so what, do we raise the price of those, those shares, that offering, or, I mean, there has to be some mechanism that kind of protects against those sort of hostile takeovers. But if you've got like a Carl Icahn in town who is known for that sort of thing where he sees something wrong with a business and he, he buys up and controls a majority share, makes changes to the board of directors, makes changes to the business operations, and then leaves it in a better shape than it was before through that operation, shouldn't that be allowed? Yes, but I think we have picked an individual who does good things, and I don't think most people are in it for that necessarily same idea. I feel like there's a whole lot of people that get in it, and they're only in it for the money, not necessarily trying to make the business better for the people's sake and the community's sake. They're just there to churn and burn as much cash as they can. I agree. I agree with that. There is, I mean, there is like a career option, which is pretty much just your goal is to find companies that are struggling for stupid reasons and to buy them up, fix them, and then resell them at a much higher valuation. Like that's, people do that. That's a, that's a form of venture capitalism, but I don't know. I guess, I guess it's got huge startup costs and all that too. I don't know. I, it's such a fun idea. It would be great to flesh it out a little bit more and actually kind of figure out how something like that would work. I know for our small operations that we use um, with Joey and our chief of technology, Cody, we use Mercury, which is super brand new. It's literally, they, they've branded themselves as the bank for startups and that's what they want to do. They want to be the bank that works here. And so we didn't have to fight through the horrible, terrible corporate bureaucracy of going to one of these giant banks and proving all this stupid stuff. We literally said, hey, look, we just want to open an account throw a few thousand bucks in there and be able to use it as a checking account for all the different subscription services we need to build our product. They said, we'd love to have you. They approved us in an hour and a half. It was great. <laughs> it was so much fun. So, you know, bank for startups, you'd have a bank for restaurants, you'd have a bank for shopping centers and all this different stuff and just be very focused. And that would, I think, cut down the time and pain for a lot of these things. Yeah, I think we spent a long time consolidating everything. I mean, yeah. Our parents' generation was we built so many malls and we had so many department stores. Macy's is the king of it. You can go and get anything you want. They have the biggest piece of land in uh, Manhattan where you can just walk through and see all the different stuff. But we're our generation is very quickly moving away from that. Like as much as we enjoy walking through the mall and that type of thing, we don't go to Sears, we don't go to JCPenney. We don't go to the big department stores for anything anymore because it's all consolidated, generalized things. And the banks are just the same thing. A bunch of banks bought up all the smaller niche ones that did things very well. And they just made them the same big corporate thing and took away the niche value that they provided. Yeah, they conformed so, them for the, the pro forma. <laughs> yeah, so now like I think things were, were very quickly diversifying again where it's like the niche markets are coming out which either they're finding their own little group and they're doing it very well or they're forcing change in the big corporations i.e what robin hood has done and that type thing where it's forced the big banks and investment companies to change and do things because the little guy is making major competition now it takes a 
man, it takes kind of a diamond in the rough sort of business model like that and a huge amount of risk to disrupt an operation. So Robinhood is originally famous for exactly that, disrupting the financial, uh, the just basically as standard type of investing as you can get, equities, and literally that's it, up until quite recently with options and cryptocurrency. But they disrupted them because they said, you don't have to pay commissions whenever you trade. And that's the first time that has ever really happened to my knowledge. Before you'd be paying, I think E-Trade was probably the lowest up until that point. It was, it was $8.95 per trade, that's in and out. There was no way for you to make money as someone who just wanted to get into this world, who didn't have a lot of money up front. You had to have capital behind you because you had to make $20 to make the investment even work. So say that you're just starting out, you're 16, 16 years old, something like that. And you're like, I wanna get into this world. I've got 200 bucks. Um, I just, I kinda wanna like, uh, I, wanna, I wanna see how this investing thing works. There's no way you're gonna win. You have to make 20% on every single trade if you're putting half of your net, half of your $200 in, it's, it was ridiculous. So. The way how they were able to do that is their uh, payment for order flow function, which is not a new concept. It's been around for quite a while, but they basically make the spread by selling out the ability to fulfill orders. So they were able to survive as a company and make that money that way. But that's a long way of saying you're right. But it takes someone who's willing who's willing to say, you know, I'm going to take a huge risk here and do it completely differently, i.e. Elon Musk, Robin Hood type of thing. I think more companies are doing that now and whether it's not just to make their own way out there and they're like, we'll take a smaller cut with arguably more risk than the big companies, but we think we're going to get more people in with this smaller cut and that's going to kind of counteract it. And I think there's a lot that are doing that. And the good thing is, is either we get a new service that is fantastic and fits a new niche or it forces change in the big companies that are just got major profit margins and just got terrible practices and makes them do the new thing that makes it better for all of us because i think for a long while we've just been like okay this is the way it is this is the way corporations run these things we have to abide by it and then now especially with web3 people are like nah man i'm gonna go on my computer i'm gonna throw together some lines of code i know i'm really dumbing this down a lot but I'm going to throw together some lines of code. I'm going to create my own company and I'm going to do it totally different. And it's not really going to cost me that much money to make. And and we're going to do our own thing. And hopefully it picks up traction. I'll invest more money and it'll blow up. You're right. That was a dumbed down version of it, but it was, it was accurate. And I, you see it all the time. I think there's two pieces to this. Something you said earlier is, was very interesting. I can't remember exactly how you put it, but I think the ability to unlock new sources of like a new customer base, that didn't exist before, they were completely out of the market. That's a superpower. And the second one is, it's kind of differentiation for the sake of differentiation, which you're right, It's they're literally just pushing it forward to push it forward, and if something cool comes out of it, great. If not, it literally didn't cost you anything but a little bit of time. Let's go try something new somewhere else. And we're able to, like the communication among all generations and all demographics is ginormously increased from what it was 10 years ago. So you can get in touch with whoever you need to get in touch with. You can put, hey, I need I need someone who's skilled at this. You can put that out into the world and that person will probably find their way to you and then you can build things with them. It's crazy. I love it. I get, I'm obsessed with it. Yeah, one thing I love about Web3 and I have a couple different apps and all that I track, all the different little companies that are coming out of it. What's the big ones for the day that are new and that are doing something different? And and it's cool because with Web3, it seems people are just like throwing things out there. Like they get an idea and they just make a company and it's just they're churning them out, just kicking out on and on and on. I wonder how many trademarks and patents or whatever else has been coming out of this. It's got to be explosive, but yep. they're, they're putting things out for the sake of putting things out. They might not have any purpose in the entire world and they're probably going to fail, but people are kicking things out. And eventually, it's like one of them's going to hit. If you throw 100 things, one will hit. You're right. And so they keep doing that. So in one way, it's kind of wasteful because you're putting in time, effort, money, whatever else for a bunch of little things that might not work. But then on the other hand, one thing's going to hit and it's going to change everything. And I feel like that's the beauty of this. We're also kind of recreating the corporate structure, interestingly enough, in the Web3 world. And you have a few of these that did exactly what you said, which is they kept throwing things until something hit. They got popularity. They acquired enough funding from the communities that they've built to pursue more projects 
And what I see a lot of companies and a lot of folks doing is they'll put everything under their one quote ecosystem is what they're calling it pretty much. And so that was their original program. So everything's under that ecosystem. And then they branch out and they have these different layers of these projects. And so the first one's gonna be the structure. Second one's, I. the problem is I don't speak the tech language, so I can't do it justice. But I think the third or fourth function is usually the FinTech function, which is dealing with the banking, the insurance, the funding. The fourth and fifth, the final one is like gaming and NFTs. It's the least actually useful, least functional project out of it but they have different names for every single one of these little programs within it so you've got one ecosystem that has just been snapping up projects from other people buying them out or building more so you've got the one corporate hydra head and 50 60 small project apps under it that are all technically part of that ecosystem company thing and are under control of it but they're different they're their own thing it's like how i mean i'm trying to think of uh like one of the big restaurant brands that owns five of the giant chains. It's exactly like that, where they've, they're similar but different, but technically all owned by the same thing. Like Arby's owning Buffalo Wild Wings and Duncan and all those other. Exactly, exactly like that. And they all kind of serve each other in different ways, but they're not all the same thing, and they all have their different piece of the puzzle. Yeah, because it's like you got this one group, and it's like, okay, if one's having a problem with this, they go, okay, well, this other company's that we own has a solution to this. Okay, let's snatch that idea, bring it over here, see if this can blow up, but you can provide this type of service for them. Like they just come swip and swap different parts. It's like, I don't know, it's kind of cool. It's it's sort of the dream, it's like the tech entrepreneur's dream, which is you don't have to fight through the bureaucracy of figuring out how all the splits are gonna happen and who's gonna get paid doing what. You just say, okay, we're all technically under, I'm a super basic example, Solana. Solana is an ecosystem and it's also a token, a coin that you can buy, purchase, whatever. We're all under Solana. That's what we work under. And we're all gonna have our own projects. We don't need to talk every day, but say I see you doing something over there and be like, oh, hey, yeah, we're both part of Solana. I, I'm doing this. Do you wanna coexist and work on it together? Oh yeah, cool, and whatever. And they just work on it together. Something new comes out of it and you all win. Yeah, I, I'll say that's the biggest thing about Web3 that I've noticed is, and I could be wrong, but it seems there's a major like theme of cooperativity with it. And like everybody seems to like really work together and be like, okay, you're doing this, I'm doing this, we can work together, make something better and bigger. Whereas like, I feel like traditional business is like the exact opposite. Like, and you've talked about this before, which is like, this is what I have, no one else touch it, no one come near it, I'm gonna keep it secretive from everybody else, I will fight you. <laughs> like, yep. I wanna burn your company to the ground and Web3 is like, Let's just grow our beautiful companies together. Well, it's yeah, the uh, the old original way of doing business. I think from what I've seen is the scarcity mindset, which is there's a finite amount of customers. I need all of them, and the abundance mindset, which is kind of the new creator version of looking at it, is saying, oh, actually, these customers go across different business lines, and by working together, we can create even more. Like the pie will get bigger if we work together, and we'll both win from it. Bigger pie means we could both eat more. You're right. You're right. But I, so this is really funny. So in the real estate world, this is great. And it, I, I laugh at it every time because it's just so, it's just so unimportant and so minuscule is everyone is just fighting. Everyone wants, like the first thing they want to do is they want to make sure, how do I get paid? I need to make sure I have it in, I have it in writing. How do I get paid? How do I get paid? How do I get paid? And I'm like, dude, who gives a shit? The project doesn't matter. Like you're not going to get paid at all if we get hung up on this and it, nothing happens and nothing gets done. Why don't you focus on it? We'll figure it out at the end and work for it. It's just goofy. And it's such a, it's such an old fashioned way of doing it. And nowadays it's, well, we know there's people who are willing to buy stuff and we know there's we know there's value in this project. What if we just what if we just build it and throw it out there and um, whatever happens happens. We'll figure it out from there. And it's awful gutsy. <laughs> like it's, I'll just build it and they'll come. Yep. I believe that's uh, quite biblical. If you build it, they will come. But it's working. It's working. <laughs> it's working beautifully. There's it's worth mentioning that there are definitely layers to the web3 world and there, you have to you have to find your niche. So like the top layer that everyone kind of sees and turns away usually is the, the I, it's like the first gate as I call it, and it's it's the screechers. It's the it's the NFT guys and the crypto guys and the follow me to make a million dollars and uh, oh my god look at this picture of a monkey you can't steal that. It's those people and that is the most unattractive of all the gates. It's you it's kind of useless. It's a get rich quick thing and it's, there's nothing to it. Whatever. Gate two is. I think once you get past that, you get into the, okay, 
I don't know how any of this works. I'm kind of curious. Can you tell me more? And gate two is really nice. It's a lot of it's questions. It's questioning. It's learning. Gate three is the people who are actually building these things. And those are the ones that are answering the gate two people bringing them through. Gate three is the Greg Eisenbergs of the world who are out there actually building projects, making them happen, putting them on the blockchain or creating new forms of blockchain, stuff like that. And you got gate four, which are the Cody's, which is our chief technology people who actually speak the language. I don't understand a word that they're ever saying. It goes right over my head, but that is the actual technology piece of it. Gate four people are never gonna have to worry about ever running out of money. They're good, <laughs> they're fine. Gate three, you're gonna have to work for it. Gate two, just scratch the surface. One, they're probably all gonna crash and burn because they're not thinking of this properly. Yeah. But that was a that was a long-winded way of saying everything. Um, all right. <laughs> I, uh, I totally lost my train here. Let's, uh, oh, okay, I got a fun one for you. Let's move on to tech, except, uh, no, 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 you want to do the Hulu one? Did you do that? Yes. Yeah. I that. did that. I dropped that in today. So we got to stop paying for streaming services with ads. And this popped in my mind while I was taking a shower. It's one of them shower thoughts. So I was like, I pay for Hulu with ads uh, indirectly through Spotify, but I pay for it. And so it's, $7 a month for Hulu with ads. If you get Hulu without ads, it's $13. I looked up what they got paid in ad revenue per person per month in 2021. They made roughly $13. It was 1275 in 2021 per person per month for ads. So why, like I get without ads, it's $13. Okay, they make the same amount of money. Cool, makes sense. But if you have Hulu with ads, you're paying $7 and then they're getting $13 from the companies. So they're making seven more dollars than they would if you had just paid for them uh, to not have any ads. So 70% of people do this. I looked it up to stats. 70% of people just deal with the ads on Hulu and it's generated them $1.5 billion in revenue because of this. Because people are just dealing with it? Because instead of paying $6 more a month, they'll tolerate the ads, which are annoying and they come up all the time. But it's just wild that like they generate double the value in ad revenue per person than they get in from just the subscription service. And the subscription service that they people pay into is it's just extra cash flow for them. They don't need that money to like provide the service. And so that's why I'm like, it, if you're having ads on these streaming services, it should just be free. I mean, the, the cost to them is the same. They're making the same amount of money as if you had paid for the, them to not have ads. I see what you're saying. They're technically actually making more money off you if you pay them less. Yes. That is so Very backwards. <laughs> I'm so glad you found that out. That's ridiculous. <laughs> so if you pay them more money, the $13, and not have ads, they make only $13. If you pay them less money, $7, and you have ads, they get the $7 from you and $13 from ad company to make $20. I wonder if this is like a super backwards psychology thing where they say, well, they know this. They have to know this because the financial people all know this. They, they know exactly how much money they're making. They have to say, look, I'm willing to bet that people think we make more money off them if they pay us more because that just makes logical sense. And people don't want to pay us more. So we're, we're going to trick them into paying less, which actually pays us more. That is, that's some mind game stuff. <laughs> that's horrible. <laughs> and you were talking about the marketing companies manipulating our brains. They're Here evil. I hate them. I absolutely, I think that they are, they are absolutely evil and they've, they're drunk with power and don't know what they're doing. But I need God. to find a succinct, better way to put this out there. And I'd really love for it to really get out there and on the Twitter spaces and people to really recognize it because Substack. we should be getting... If we're getting ads on this, and this also goes back to TV, we should have gotten cable free for all the ads that were on it. But if you're getting ads on these things, you should get it for free. They're making the same amount of money as they would if they you didn't have ads. If you want to pay, then you don't get ads. Cool, that's fine. I'm willing to pay that so I don't get ads. But like, if you don't want to, get the service for free. I bet the advertising companies would definitely love to hear this from you. You should write a Substack on it. What about Netflix? Have you done, done Netflix? They don't have ads, do they? Have ads. Oh, that's true. I forgot about that. Yeah, neither does Disney Plus. I'm not sure about ESPN. I don't have them. Uh, what about um, Paramount, HBO? HBO? I'm not sure about them. I don't think HBO does. So Disney is actually going to very soon. I, I saw this. I didn't write it down from the news, but 
uh, they're actually going to be adding on a different layer and they will be adding ads to their service. I'll bet that they saw this model and said, huh, we can make more by making less. <laughs> they're gonna, they're yeah. basically gonna add like another layer and say, you can pay more to not have ads or you can continue paying what you are currently and now you're gonna get ads, sucks to be you. Wow, yep. wow, that's, that's terrible and that's kind of funny, man. Yep, just a little shower thought of mine, and then I did a little medium dive, and was like, "Oh my god, I'm giving them more money by giving them less money." <laughs> you should, yeah, you should 100% write this. I think I think a lot of people would enjoy enjoy actually reading the math behind it because it, you you know if you're not an audio learner, you're probably not going to pick up much of what we're saying. Yeah. So, but it was cool. It's a very interesting way to do business, and it, it very much frustrates me. And I very much want my streaming service for free <laughs> now since I have the ads on there. It's one of those things where you start to look at and you're like, this is why I've been saying for a while, the valuations of stuff just doesn't matter because the way that we're doing things and the cost to implement a lot of this technology is nil to these companies. It's nothing. And I don't know, it's, it's one of those where I, I literally need to sit down with like a glass of whiskey and just figure it out for two hours and how I want to write it out. Cause I can't put it, I can't put it into coherent English words that make any sense, but it's nuts. It's all nuts. So. That's the curious thing for me right now is right now, like they said, 70% of their users have ads on Hulu, which is a very large portion. Yeah. But I feel like we're very quickly pushing away from that. I mean, when we moved from cable to streaming, that was one of the first things people loved is they don't have to see ads all the time. I get one succinct show. It's all in and done. I don't care if it's 24 minutes instead of 30 because you took out the ad things. I don't have to watch them in between all the time. Yeah. So. I feel like we're progressing towards and that 70% of ad people are going to become smaller and smaller and smaller and ad revenue is going to get much and much less. And it's going to be a point where it's like, okay, where are these companies that thrive off of ad revenue? What are they going to do? Because everybody's just like, oh, I'll pay $13 and not have any ads anymore. It's easy enough to budget for. You just say, all right, that 13 for the for the year and then knock it out and say, okay, and then do that for the rest of your subscription services and say, this is basically your cost of entertainment living. Uh, so I think this is worth saying. The first thing you notice when you watch a football game nowadays, and I know football season just ended recently, but the first flipping thing you realize is how many stupid advertisements you have to watch to get like 20, 30 minutes of football at most. It is constant it is inevitably constant that all you're going to do is watch ads for two and a half hours and it sucks i just i don't know why we haven't fixed it i know it's because the nfl is making too much money off of it and it is what it is and there's nothing we can do about it but it got it is so frustrating because we've been in the streaming world for a while now and i guess if you have red zone it's not a problem because there's always something on the tv and it'll just swap between games but uh have you been to a football game recently no, I haven't been to a football game since I was like seven. God, so every, we go to the Jags games and you sit there and like, all right, something's about to happen. And they're like, oh, wait, commercial break. And they'll just like go hang out and do nothing. And you're like, what are, what are we doing? Like, what's going on here? It's just so stupid. I always assumed the Jags games, like professional football games, they kept rolling. Because I'd been to a arena league football team. I went to the Jacksonville Sharks later on. I remember that. And that they had that where they took ad breaks all the time. But I assume that was just like an arena league type thing. It's not as bad, but it's still pretty bad. Anytime that there's a lapse in stuff happening, they're going to use it as a commercial break. And they're just going to air as much as they possibly can. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting. It's going to force the marketing companies and advertising companies to shift away from actual digital ads where you see like the little mini movie type essentially thing in between parts of your show or football game, whatever. And it's going to be more product placement, like around the stadiums now you see that like it's all wrapped and like whatever else, uh, what brand, Gatorade or Coinbase, whoever else is sponsoring it. When you watch a TV show, there's going to be more ad placements. People are going to be drinking more Coke or a specific wine or wearing a Hurley t-shirt, whatever it may be, because that's going to get them on there because there's going to be less actual ads. It's just going to be product placement at that point. I see what you're saying. More people are going to be willing to pay to get around the advertisements so that they might as well just passively incorporate them in the entertainment that they're currently getting. 100%. Yeah. I like that too because it's non-intrusive. And I get that it's still basically hacking your mind and teaching you to want certain things. And that's horrible and terrible in its own way. But it it's definitely a less active version of marketing that I prefer. I would rather... So the Marvel movies are a great example of this. The, the last few that came out 
Volkswagen is a gigantic sponsor. Absolutely huge. Notice what they all drive. Audis. Who owns Audi? Volkswagen. <laughs> they all drive Audis. Mercedes got in there for a little bit. They all drive Mercedes. Um, take a look at the James Bond movie. What do they all drive? Toyotas and Range Rovers. Guess who's a big sponsor of the James Bond movie? <laughs> it's just hey, hey, don't forget Aston Martin there, sir. Oh yeah, but that's part of the brand. That's all that that I think is a little bit different. That's just you can't have Bond without an Aston Martin. But you know, you know what I'm saying, yeah. right? I think it all works as long as it's just placement and they don't try to incorporate ad spiels into shows and all, which I feel like could become a thing with enough money flowing into it where it's like Instead of like the person, instead of getting just a white paper bag with burgers in it, they get a McDonald's bag and that's okay. But then when they're like, oh yeah, I got the new McDonald's triple McDouble with extra sauce and like and all this stuff. I'm like, okay, that I don't care about. It does not pertain to my show. And that's where I draw the line. None of that. Just put the McDonald's bag there instead. I would love that. You're, you're in the middle. It's like a very big plot point. He's like, hang on. I have to eat my Big Mac with a large fry. <laughs> that would be horrible. But so yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think that's where it, where it's heading towards is like more just product placements. Yeah, you just put a put a Coke with the label facing the screen. All right, that, that works. That's fine. Big uh, deal. Yeah. Intrusive. So it's such a cool concept. Creative marketing does stand out though whenever you see it. I mean, best example, obviously, this is a cop out example, is the Coinbase during the Super Bowl thing. And this is funny. So I've talked to a lot of people about this because I think it's a very curious concept. And you get the information off Twitter, but it's fun having the real conversation. So everyone I talked to that is kind of into the crypto world was like, that was genius. That was awesome. We loved it. I mean, it just it was just 30 seconds of like, what is this? How do I interact with this? You speak to the older generations and they say, I didn't get it. They're like, yeah, well, it, it wasn't meant for you. <laughs> it wasn't, it was, you're never going to get this. They've accepted that you're never going to be one of their customers. So they've moved on and they just want the younger generations who know when you see a QR screen, you can open up your phone and you can scan the QR screen and go to a link. You guys don't know that. We know that. And they used that. We knew that to drag us in one direction. Yep. And, but I'd argue there's not many ads like that. No. And it's gotten worse and worse. And the ads aren't good. They've, they've tried to make them more funny and they're terrible. And you see the same ad over and over again, which is on purpose because it ingrains it in your brain, whatever little jingle or tune. But like, they're, they're not good. The Super Bowl ads used to be amazing. Mm -hmm. Like watching the day after, like what were the top 10 Super Bowl ads? I remember Doritos always killed it. Yes, they did. And like, they were amazing. But now it's like, okay. Like I, I watched the ad re, uh, review this year and it was just like, they, they weren't great. I wasn't impressed. Nothing like really like caught my eye. Like, okay, this was worth as someone who doesn't watch football. It was worth me watching two and a half hours of football for these little ad entertainments, which it wasn't. Do you think it's because the bar for our entertainment has been raised so high? Maybe it has, but then it's up to them to reach the new level that we have raised it to. Maybe, maybe. So I think having a very self-aware brand presence on social media is a huge help nowadays. I think you would do better as a brand if you wanted to advertise, get yourself off Hulu. It's stupid. I, I don't want Allstate. I, I'm never going to want Allstate. I'm never going to want Progressive. I don't want insurance. I actually hate insurance because I understand that it's majority a scam. And farmers. Yep. I don't want any of those. So you guys need to and like the Roman, like the male enhancement stuff. Again, you're barking up the wrong tree. Good to go over here, man. But I like if Good you really hear. if you really wanted to get new customers, go look at Wendy's Twitter. Wendy's Twitter's hilarious. Go look at Slim Jim's Instagram. They're fantastic. You see them all over and they're witty. They're quick. Whoever those interns all need a raise. They're funny. Um, you've seen probably Dan Toomey, the guy on a morning brew, right? Yes. That dude is hilarious. He could sell anything because he's funny. He's self-aware and he's able to put things in like a, like you, you, it clicks and you're like, oh my God, I never thought of it that way. That's hilarious. I can't believe I didn't think of that. He's awesome. I, I absolutely, I've never watched one of his videos and been disappointed. They're so funny, but you get what I'm saying, right? Yes. A proper self-aware social media presence is way more valuable than any 20 seconds of screen time you can get. I hate advertisements, but I find myself even not being able to hate the self-aware brands like 
Wendy's will go on and do like roast me and a bunch of people will, you know, start roasting Wendy's for how full of sodium and crap they are and all that stuff. And they will clap back immediately really well and they will burn some people. It's so funny. So that's the way you do it. Which is a perfect segue into the Twitter stock trading game. Oh, baby, let's do it. Yeah, I don't want to miss that. I know we're running long on time. So let's let's do that. So if you're big into Twitter and you like paying attention to the big personalities, they've made a Twitter stock trading game. You're not actually trading actual money. You're not going to make anything off it. But basically all it is is instead of having companies like Apple or whatever, they still kind of have some of those on there. But you can invest in Twitter personalities. So if you want to invest in Greg Eisenberg or Brewster or the guys from Barstool, whoever it is, you invest in them. If they go viral and more people interact with them, they get more retweets, whatever else, their stock price goes up. If they say something super bad and people start unfollowing them, stop interacting with them, their stock price goes down. It's just a fun little game if you're like in that kind of universe and you're like paying attention to Twitter, you can get a couple friends on there and like invest in the people that you pay attention to, see if they blow up, especially with like Web3 stuff right now, find someone that's new doing cool things, find the next Trung fan, see if they blow up, make their account huge within a year and then you can win your little game amongst your buddies. I think it's more than just a fun game. I think if you're a company and you want to use influencer marketing, which is bigger and bigger every month nowadays, I, I'm willing to say month and not year because how fast time is moving. But if, if you want to use influencer marketing where you partner with these people to promote your products, that's where you need to be watching. You need to be paying attention to the people who have meteoric rises. And you say, all right, get them before they become too expensive and get them to advertise your products because these guys know what they're doing. They know how to interact with communities. I think it's a super useful tool. and. I mean, they're marketing as a game, but the data that they're mining is so valuable. <laughs> it's incredible. It's a cool idea that has some amazing uses. I hope that they keep and like keep building it and working on it. They just got to figure out how to be able to sell that data. I mean, because as is, it's basically free. You go in, you log into your Twitter account, and then you get in it, yep. which any of these companies could do. So they can just go in there, do it free, gather the data, hire whoever they want. They've got to figure out a way that they provide a little bit more value and able to sell this data to these companies. Yeah. So that way they can make more off it. I think so too. We talked about this a little bit off air. It would be really fun if you could actually put money into this and invest and gamble on it. And, but I don't think the SEC would ever go for it ever. I just, they'd, they'd laugh at you, I guess. I mean, like they did with Kaushi for a while, but Kaushi's just had tremendous success. It's, you basically vote on binary outcomes, which is a yes or no for, pretty much anything that they're able to get a market on. But the only problem that I really see is if you were, if I was Elon Musk and I would go on here and he's just, he's just I don't think he would do this because he's already got so much money. But I was like, oh, I need funding for a new project. I've got a, I've got a tweet that I'm pretty confident is gonna go viral. You just invest in yourself <laughs> and then shoot it off and then take the profits off whoever whoever bought in at that point. Uh, yeah, that could be a lot of conflict of interest. Plus insider trading would be so easy. Yeah, it'd be so easy. So yeah, it's probably something that'll never ever be able to do that. But cool idea. I love it. It's it's fun. You should go on there. I'll um I'll link the uh I'll link the the URL into the show notes so that we can make sure that everyone can go take a look at it. Especially if you're an avid Twitter user. I just I just ride the barstool wave. Like oh my they, God, they yeah. do this thing where they get in the headlines at least once. It's really big every six months and Sell at the sell at the peak, wait for it to dimmer back down over a little while, buy the dip, and then it'll climb back up over the next six months over something that they say, and then okay, sell again, repeat that cycle. Yep, Dave Portnoy will get really bored in the uh, football off season, and so then he'll go stir up some uh, stir up some drama, and then football happens, and he's like, ah, oh, wait, I don't want to deal with you guys anymore, and so then he goes and does his thing, and then off season, ah, I stir up some drama. It's you're right, it's literally a cycle. Next, it'll just be like him and like Joe Rogan just like going at it for some reason. They both blow up. Yeah, yeah. They they all have to know that they have such influence over everyone for it. It's <laughs> wild. All right, let's. You got one more awesome company that I think is worth talking about as well. So let's do that one, and then we'll wrap up. Okay, so there's this company that I found online, and if you're like me, I like cooking a lot, and I also like cooking like more different things than what necessarily my mom made at home. I don't just make like spaghetti and home-cooked southern stuff, which is what most of 
the grocery stores cater to. There's a site called We W E E E exclamation mark. And so what this is is this is an online marketplace for all of your Asian or Hispanic goods that you may want. So you can get all the different sauces and spices and vegetables and snacks, all that type of stuff. So you're not just confined to that one little international food aisle at Publix, like where you can get like soy sauce, but it's four different types of basic soy sauce. You can't go get the dark soy that's thicker and more rich, or you can't get the light soy or like anything else. Like Publix just started carrying chili oil and gochujang, which are like pretty big things in Asian culture. And it's pretty basic. And I enjoy those a lot, but like, then again, it's like they just got that. They're way behind the power curve on this. So it's great that I could go online on a site and be like, okay, I need like these like basic Asian goods that like they'll improve like the spices and the other stuff in my kitchen and my cooking and all that type of stuff. Super simple, super easy. It's just like we talked about Boxed before, which was the online version of uh, Costco. I love this because I'm glad you said it too. The first thing I was going to say was, yeah, so now I don't have to go to that literal half an aisle that they have in Publix. And it's like the Oriental aisle. And it's, you're right, four different kinds of the exact same soy sauce and three different kinds of jasmine rice and nothing else. And, um, and it's like, yeah, it's the Americanized stuff, too. Like if you get in the Hispanic section, oh, my God, if I see more El Paso, like mm-hmm. shells or whatever else, I can't stand it. Yep, it's all bullshit. I agree. Try. I challenge anyone who isn't actually from one of these cultures because you guys can like hack it and figure. I don't know. You, you've got it ingrained in you, and you're better at this than I am. But I challenge pretty much any basic ass white or black person to go try to cook Indian, Thai, Colombian, Chilean, uh, any of those high specific f- types of food. It will not taste the same <laughs> if you have to use like the sacrifice materials that Publix has because they always have like a. Oh, if we don't have this, use this instead. It's just as good, but kind of not the same thing, but kind of the same thing. It will not taste the same. (laughs) It won't even come close. I know we've tried to cook Indian here before. If you don't go get the actual ingredients from a market and get them fresh and organic, it's just not going to be very flavorful at all. No, it's worth going to a local market or ordering stuff offline that like people actually use and like I've listened to a food podcast where they talk about that and they're talking about the foods they grew up with and like we have ramen here in the United States it's been around for a while but we had like one brand of ramen and you and you had like an option of brand uh, flavors you could either get beef or chicken and that was it yep and like but they had like so many well so like it sells. <laughs> That's literally it. It's just like enough people are buying it. It doesn't matter. But now I mean, you're right. If you ever go to like an actual ramen place, actual ramen itself is a full on meal. And it's just, it's, ooh, man, it's so good. It's not like just basic college two cent ramen. They have cool things too. Like they have like, they call it hot pot, which is basically like noodles oh, and yeah. meat and all that type of stuff. And it comes in a little plastic bowl and it's self-heating. Like it's like how MREs are. Like you don't have to toss it in the microwave. It does it all in a little plastic bowl, makes your little soup and all the little meats and all that type of stuff in the package. Nothing else needed. It's fantastic, but you can't get that in Publix. Nope. But I guarantee you'd blow up if you could. There was a guy I saw did a video pretty recently. I think it was on one of my uh, probably United Kingdom type of barstool-like pages that I follow. But he, uh, he was over somewhere in Asia. I think it was somewhere in China in specific. Could have been Japan. Oh, no, it was definitely Japan. And he was showing how behind the rest of the world is on the way that we do food and distribution. And, like, their food packets and everything basically just pop and then convert into something you can use to eat with. I, every, every kind of way they did it was very efficient and less waste than how we have it. And it was all these things where we look at a ketchup packet and we're like, oh, this is going to be gross and messy and I'm going to need five of them. They fixed that. They fixed that a long time ago and we just we just really haven't caught up. Yeah. Oh, no, they're also the ones that like wrap things in like four different layers of plastic. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's true. We're, whereas we're like, okay, our apples can be outside the plastic, but they also got like weird, really expensive fruit over there. Like you can get a cantaloupe for like $60 or something because they've done like cool and interesting things to it. I mean, they're the ones that came up with the pink pineapple. Well, nothing's perfect, but, you know, trade-offs, and we got to take the best of everything and go from there. I didn't know there was a pink pineapple, though. That's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. They're pretty, they taste, like, basically the same. Maybe a little bit sweeter, but they're kind of cool. Huh. 
All right, so we'll link a Wii as well, and also it's that's two good websites <laughs> to get uh, to get checked out. I might uh, I might start shopping there if they you know deliver over here in little old Florida. Yeah, I assume they do. I think it's international wherever you need it to be. It's cool because like like I said, Publix just started carrying chili oil, and I put that on everything. So like, be able to get a bunch more than stuff like that is fantastic for me. Yeah, worth noting. I think your typical Publix customer is not seeking out a lot of these type of things. <laughs> They're just going straight for chicken, veggies, rice, and or probably actually more bagged unhealthy horrible foods but you know you know how it goes i'm usually very alone over there in the the fresh fresh vegetables aisle and it's okay it's okay i'm not offended i kind of like to be alone not to fight with anyone for stuff (laughs) all right all right that was a lot of fun i always love the saturday one so uh you got anything else nope that's all for me well that was great because we have we literally probably only got through about half of the topics (laughs) we're doing so we're we're gonna have we're gonna have tons of good stuff for monday so uh we will see you on monday See you Monday.